You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore and this is lois richter on a bright beautiful sunny davis day hey don it's the beginning of june it's hot out here is that it, what's that going on? it feels like summer it certainly felt like summer a couple days ago it is 64 degrees actually as we prepare this broadcast on wednesday june 2nd the broadcast date will be Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. Today is going up to a high of 91 degrees. Two days ago, the high was 104 to 106, depending on where you were in the Sacramento Valley. And we had a one-day heat wave. Is it really a heat wave if it's one day? Or do you just say we had a really hot day? We had a really hot day. And then uh, that Delta breeze came gushing in by about 8, 9 p.m. And we dropped back down practically to 60 degrees that night. Tonight, it's going to be 55 degrees. We've got a milder trend tomorrow, Thursday, the day of the broadcast, 94 degrees. Thursday night, 57. Then Friday at 91. Saturday, 91. Sunday, 86 degrees. Monday, 82 degrees. Get this one. Monday night, mostly clear with a low around 49 <laughs> 49. So, um, just you know, the only thing I like to do when we're talking about the weather it, it, as a brief discussion is explain how this affects some of the things in your garden. And the things that I'm looking at is people bring them in where they're real concerned they might have a disease or a pest. Peppers, in particular, 49 degrees. If the leaves are expanding when the night suddenly drops that cool by comparison with, say, the mid to upper 50s or low 60s, as it's been in the previous several days, those leaves that are expanding will curl and cup along the edges. And that will cause them to sort of buckle and get a little deformed. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It literally is just a response to these dramatic fluctuations in the weather. We were 104 to 106 two days ago, and in a few days it's going to be 49 degrees. That's quite a range for a plant that's stuck in the ground outside to endure. And uh, these are subtropical to tropical plants, and so they're often more affected by the cool night temperatures coming in abruptly than they are by the daytime highs. Had a lot of conversations with people as that high temperature was coming in and also the day after. People looking for shade cloth, they were concerned about protecting young plants. And before you go to a lot of trouble to put shade over something, ask this question, is this a plant that is normally described as being good for full sun, like a tomato plant? If it is, you don't need to shade it. It'll just be a hot day for it. Make sure it's got adequate water and you know a good deep soaking right before a hot spell is what I prefer to do, right? As we see, it's going to get hot. Or if you've missed it, you know, go ahead and give it a good soaking as it's happening or afterwards. But um, if it's a plant for full sun, you don't need to shade it. Yeah, I know you're concerned that we're getting hot suddenly and you feel like you need to go out and rig up a shade structure over it. And we're talking, most of the conversations were about tomatoes. Tomatoes grow in full sun. Sunburn on the fruit was an issue last year. 
and is sometimes here in very hot spells in August to early September when fruit is ripening. Uh, a young green fruit will not be badly affected by a hot day. It's when it's gotten to the breaker stage, as they call it in the fruit biz, you know, when it's gone from solid green to just getting a tinge of any other color, uh, pale yellow or beginning to get the blush of pink to red, at that stage, and particularly as it becomes ripe, if it's exposed to direct hot sun on an extremely hot day, that is to say the fruit on the west or southwest side of the vine that's facing directly to the hottest sun at five o'clock in the afternoon, that particular fruit might sunburn. So if you're concerned about that and you want to fully ripen it on the vine, a little shade from the west can be very helpful, but keep this in mind. Tomatoes are climacteric fruit, which we've said before, and it's a term that means they will continue to ripen after you pick them. So if it's got a blush or is pink or getting close to red, and we're having an extreme heat wave and there's some fruit on the outer part of the vine that you think is gonna burn, my suggestion would be pick them, bring them in the house, set them on your counter, and they'll be fully ripe within a couple of days. So I think the best bet in terms of protecting a plant from extreme heat is to protect the part you're gonna eat and not worry so much about building a structure for it. The key question is how long does the heat go on and what stage of development is your fruit at? We can get damage on fruit on fruit trees and get damage on fruit on fruit vines like tomatoes when we have extreme heat as they're ripening. That's when you have a real concern. But cooler weather coming up for the next few days and uh, all the way down to a high literally of 81 degrees next Tuesday. So very lovely weather and real important, tomato vines are flowering and temperatures in the 80s, those flowers will set fruit. So that's your crop coming up, setting in the next week. The blossoms that were open two days ago, afraid they probably fell off. A question came up in a local Facebook group about whether it's too late to plant. Needless to say, yes. I get this all the time at my garden center. Um, and just as an experiment, a couple of years ago, I decided to plant four tomatoes on August 1. They were just plants I had around at my nursery. So this was an easy test for me to do. I put them in full sun. Four varieties, as I recall, two of them were heirloom and two of them were hybrid. They were just pretty common ones that you'd recognize, like early girl and you know that type of thing. And I put them on a line that I was watering frequently. This is an important data point for this. It was on a line that I had peppers and things like that, things that want a lot of water. I didn't put them on a line where I was deep watering tomato vines that were already well established. They would have needed more frequent watering than that. August 1. Each one of those tomatoes, both the hybrids and the heirlooms, set about and ripened fully about 20 fruit in mid-October for me. So August 1, 20 fruit, mid-October. Uh, that's uh, the latest I've planted so far. This year I plan to plant some on August 15th. Let's see what happens with those. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> but those were uh, plants that were already grown and you were you were transplanting. Yeah. This was not something that you started from seeds and they were a little bit bitty two inch tall stuff. No, these were overgrown plants at my garden center, which is kind of what you're gonna start finding at garden centers right now and hardware stores is, you know, we do keep them around. We try to keep healthy ones. And these are ones that I was, we're, you know, August one, my opinion is, a little late for me to be selling people tomato plants. So we're getting ready to throw them out. And I just took some of these tall, they were, yeah, 16 inches tall or, or bigger. I did drop them in deeper as I always do. I did tease out the roots quite a bit when I planted them. I gave them a very thorough soaking and I put them on a line that was watering frequently every couple of days because it had shallower rooted 
summer vegetables on it. But I was impressed that they had time. They took right away. You put a tomato or any of these warm season vegetables into that kind of warm soil, they'll barely miss a beat. They, you don't even really go through any kind of transplant shock. They just immediately started growing and flowering and setting fruit. And the fruit that they set was ripe in mid-October. So you'd have to, wherever you're listening, you'd have to think, you know, where do you still have temperatures above 50 at night? Just as a good rule of thumb all the way in through October. Uh, if your season ends mid-September, then count back eight to 10 weeks and that's the latest you can plant. Because I know we have listeners all over the country, all over the world. Many people obviously couldn't be planting after July 1. If your season ends around Labor Day, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd barely have time for them to ripen. You might have time though for them to get to that breaker stage where there's light color on the fruit and you can ripen them the rest of the way on your kitchen counter. So it's very easy to ripen tomatoes inside and you might be able to get a last planting in. The main, main point being garden centers and hardware stores stop ordering when sales slow down. Some of them stop completely. I've been into some hardware stores that look pretty bad in their vegetable department because things started to drop and sales started to drop. So they just stop ordering. Um, but that doesn't mean it's too late to plant. That's just a, that's just a retail uh, business decision they've made. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether you can still suitably put them in the ground. And the good news is an overgrown tomato plant can still plant out just fine. I don't plant overgrown squash or pumpkins, things like that. I think they are stunted to the point that they won't do well. I look for healthy young plants in the case of those types of things. An overgrown tomato plant, tear those roots up, put it in deeper, give it a little bit of fertilizer, water it deeply, and you should get good results, even what seems to be late in the season. So why do you say put it in deeper? Because if you're burying part of the stem, does that mean it's going to root out there or it's just yep. support or what? It, one, yes, it is support because they're big gangly things. And the second is that it does put out adventitious roots from each node. And uh, so I always plant tomatoes deep. It's not absolutely essential. You'll find a whole range of planting techniques online, dig a trench, drop them down. I just dig a hole, I drop them down so there's a couple of those nodes are buried and I know they're gonna root right out of those nodes, it'll stabilize the plant. And in my particular case, I plant them deep enough to get them out of what I call the gopher zone. <laughs> and it works, That's you, got, you, got, you got gopher root problems. Yeah. Gophers are lazy. Gophers, uh, you know, we've come to an accommodation, not because I want to, but because I have to. Um, I have gophers riddling one area where I plant tomatoes quite regularly. And I have found that if I get the plants to about two and a half to three feet tall in a one gallon container, and I dig a hole that's very deep, like 24 inches deep, 18 inches minimum, and I put them all the way down there, I have had gophers surface around those plants and not damage them. Whereas if I put them up in their zone, which is the top foot of soil, they will annihilate them. So I'm working, I'm strategizing around them since I don't really have any alternative. And I have found this works. Deeper planting does seem to get the plants past the zone of gopher predation. I'm not making any guarantees for those of you listening with gopher problems, but that's worked for me. Okay, let's do a public service announcement. Sunflowers, I wanna know about sunflowers. Yes, Yellow County Visitors Bureau has uh, recognized that with thousands of acres of sunflowers being grown in Yolo and Solano counties, which is where we are broadcasting from, Yolo County, people driving along the freeway see these fields of two, 300 acres of sunflowers in bloom. They do what all of us would want to do. They pull over and they take pictures of them. And it's become a huge draw to people who are driving through the great flat Sacramento Valley and they suddenly see a field of sunflowers. So the Yellow County Visitors Bureau is helping the farmers with this. Uh, the farmers are doing it, you know, to make money. 
They're mainly growing them, by the way, to sell the seed from those sunflowers to people elsewhere who grow sunflowers, to other farmers in other parts of the world. Mostly the sunflower growers in our area are seed growers for crop. They're not seed growers for you to eat. They're not seed growers for oil. They're primarily growing them to sell the seed to other farmers elsewhere. And they're growing hybrids, which it's, uh, explains the curious pattern where there's three rows of one kind and one row of another to get the cross-pollination. But the main point is, in the insurance business, they call something that attracts people that way an attractive nuisance. That is to say, people are drawn to it and it can become a problem. So the Yolo County Visitors Bureau, which is visityolo.com, has a whole page now on sunflowers. One, with some beautiful pictures you can look at. Two, with some pointers about how to safely and respectfully appreciate and take pictures of and enjoy this amazing spectacle of thousands of acres of sunflowers growing in the Yellow County area. And there's lots of information. There's a blog there. They've got some, some uh, sites that, you know, ideas, some maps and such where you can go find some nice sunflowers. And then some points about how to be respectful and not cause problems for yourself or others, such as don't park on private property. All the sunflower fields in Yellow County are private property. You're trespassing if you walk into the field. Um, don't park along an irrigation canal. The irrigation canals here are deep and sometimes have pretty fast moving water in them. And uh, so this is unsafe. Don't pick any flowers. That's, you know, that just seems basic, but they do feel like they have to say it. And don't litter, you know, let's, let, there's no trash receptacle, there's no bathroom, these are just farm fields. <laughs> so your best bet is to pull over on the county road onto the shoulder where you can park or a place to where you can, you know, get completely off the, the road of traffic. Step out onto the edge of the road, possibly maybe a foot or two into the farm field if you absolutely have to, but stay on public property as much as possible. Use your zoom lens to get some incredibly cool pictures. If you're in Yolo County, the coast range, the coast mountain range makes a spectacular backdrop for any of these fields of sunflowers. And so you can get some great pictures. And bear in mind that they're irrigating like crazy when the sunflowers are in their growth and bloom stage. So it's a very high likelihood that that field you're looking at is extremely muddy. Uh, like muddy to the point that you'll sink into it if you step into it. So not only is it a bad thing to do in terms of uh, safety and trespassing, but uh, you may find it's a real mess when you get out there. So uh, don't go walking out into the field. The other thing is they're heavily, heavily pollinated by bees, many bee boxes uh, on the edge of any sunflower field that's in bloom uh, to ensure cross-pollination between the two types they're growing for hybridization. And um, those bees, well, they're, you know, docile enough. They're European honeybees. They're not aggressive. There's a lot of them. And so be aware of that as well. So your best bet is to admire them from a little bit afar. Your iPhone or your, your digital phone or whatever you want to call it has <laughs> a great ability to focus, to zoom, to do panoramic views. And I suggest you make use of that. And this is not the time or place to have your family walk out in a field to be surrounded by sunflowers and bloom. That can lead to some problems such as bee stings and sinking in the mud. So be respectful and enjoy the sunflowers which bloom heavily here between mid-June and mid to late July all around the Davis, Woodland, Dixon area. For more information, go to visit YOLO. That's right. It's YOLO County, Y-O-L-O. Visit YOLO.com slash sunflowers. And there's a little bit more on that page that I want to mention because in addition to just 
showing you where the sunflowers are, they talk about folks in the county who are doing, um, how shall I say, guided tours, yep. or they have sunflowers on their property and they have set up a place for you to come and get that picture of the family and the sunflower feeds yeah. and stuff. And so there's a, a whole list of things, every from everywhere from wine tasting groups to bicycle tour groups to, uh, yeah, all sorts of things. And then they have the visit with a plan section where you can click on itineraries and it will tell you about various guided tours, sunflower tours that people are doing. If coming from a distance, that might be a smart thing to do so that you know you got somebody local showing you where to go and what to do. It anyway, happened, yeah, it, happened, time. it happens there's a couple of farmers right along Interstate 80 who grow sunflowers every year, and it happens that those are in places where there are uh, off-roads that you can go to that are just part of the freeway with places you can park, so some of those are good examples. But yeah, this is a great way to get started and figure out a way to make an expedition of it. We have stuff in Yolo County other than just sunflowers. We have cool things here. So if yeah. you're coming out of the Bay Area or someplace, mid-June to mid-July, Sunflowers will be in full bloom. We always mention it here, uh, but uh, this is a great way to get more information. And they okay. even have a sunflower newsletter that you can sign up to get. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but this is this is like the fall. Beautiful pictures. It's like the fall color back east, or the yeah. uh, things like that. Find out when the when is the season to head on out. So that's you know this is a really smart thing to do because yeah. it is promoting a something that people are going to want to see anyway yep. and tying it in with the local businesses to support our our local businesses so i'm pleased that they're doing that i'm i'm very impressed with the website too okay so um, it is, it did is. you want to talk about kdrt because not oh, yeah. this show but maybe next show let's talk about that wonderful award that we won Sure. That's, that's just a little teaser. We'll do it next week. Yeah, KDRT is a nonprofit community radio station broadcasting from Davis, California at 95.7 FM on the dial and cater.org worldwide. And community radio means that it's supported by donations from listeners like you and me to fund our operating costs. So if you like what you hear, whether it's the talk programs or the music programs, just head on over to kdrt.org, that's cater.org, and click on the support button. It's January, excuse me, it's June. It is. It's June. a lot of it there. <laughs> it's June 3rd, and uh, just a quick, for those of you listening from outside the area, just so you know what we're all about here, I just uh, happen to know that we just registered at Amazon Music, and now we have like several hundred podcast listeners thanks to Amazon. So you folks are probably all over the world. So we broadcast from Davis, California, which is near Sacramento. It's in the great Sacramento Valley of Northern California. So just so you know what our weather is, our average high in the month of June is 87 degrees. That's our average high. Our average low is 58 degrees. Our record high in the month of June ever was 115 degrees. I was here when that happened. It wasn't much fun. The record low was 41. Average rainfall in June is 0.2 inches, and I would say it's really closer to zero. It's rare for us to ever get any rain in June whatsoever. And the number of cloudy days in the month of June is 2.4. 2.4. How do we get a 0.4? Yeah, so that's our weather. That's so, I like to say this so you can compare to wherever you're listening. And mm -hmm. just for the record, our humidity, our typical humidity on a summer day here in the month of June will drop down to about 20%, 20, 25%. And when the north wind is blowing or the higher temperature is higher, it's typically in the teens or lower. So we have desert-like humidity when it's hot. 
Um, that's uh, one of the common things you hear is, you know, sure is hot, but thank goodness it's not humid because we're not really muggy here ever. Uh, but that's our weather. So that's so you can compare to wherever you're listening. And then as we hit July and August, our average high temperature is more in about the 93 degree range. And that's average, remember. So we have spells well above that and some spells well below that. And that's why we have such an interesting gardening climate is we have those high temperatures and those low humidities. We have very few disease or pest problems, particularly disease problems compared to muggier, rainier places. But I have a friend in Michigan and I was talking about how I was um, spending my day yesterday working on irrigation. And she replied, what is irrigation? Well, she lives in Michigan where it <laughs> rains every afternoon, Don. Not every afternoon, but it rains enough that Irrigating is not something that's necessary. So just to make a quick explanation for her and for others, anywhere west of the 100th meridian, which is, I think, an important thing for people to know about, the 100th meridian is a line that divides the United States, more or less along the Mississippi River, but not exactly. East of it, farmers could farm without irrigating. West of it, they couldn't. Okay? So west of the 100th meridian, any farming is done, and that includes gardening, by applying water that you've brought from somewhere, underground, or, out of, or in a river, or whatever. Now, obviously, like the Pacific Northwest, it rains up there. So this is basically the farm, the, the well-known farm areas of the West. And uh, we can't grow anything here in our vegetable gardens, most of our fruit trees, uh, the flowers we like to grow without watering them. It doesn't rain here from essentially 1st of May till the end of October. We might get a little rain, but not enough to cover the evapotranspiration rate of the plants. So irrigation is the key to success for gardening and farming here in the Sacramento Valley and pretty much anywhere in California, unless you have a, a landscape that is entirely either native plants or plants that are from areas with a very similar rainfall climate. So you can do landscapes that don't require irrigation. It takes some expertise to do those and to get them established properly and so on. But for gardening, for flowers, for food crops and all that kind of thing, we irrigate, that is to say we water all summer. And uh, what, learning how to water efficiently and effectively is really the key to successful gardening anywhere in California and much of the West. So that's just a quick, simple answer for her and for anyone listening in places where you don't really have to have an irrigation system or a drip line or a hose or any of that kind of stuff. Nature provides, well, nature doesn't provide for that here, at least not at the time that we need it. So we store it in snow and reservoirs and underground, and we pull it out of those when we need it. And as you've probably read this year in particular, Severe drought reservoirs are below, let's see, I think they're at about 40% of uh, average, and uh, the snowpack is down to practically nothing, and a lot of places are relying entirely on wells at this point. Uh, so that's, that's an issue this year, and it does come and go. You know, we've had flood years, and we have drought years. We've had a lot of drought years in the last decade. We've had some flooding as well, just as recently as 2017. So for us, Having a good garden here, particularly a food garden, entails figuring out how to water it, and the term for that is irrigation. Quick answer. So we are not going to go through the calendar for June. Oh, for new listeners, Don creates a calendar every year featuring his photos, all of which were taken in the month in which they are on the calendar. And it's available uh, online for free at the Davis Garden Show, no, at 
Redwoodbarn.com. Redwoodbarn.com. Yeah. yeah. And just click on the calendar and you can see what we're talking about. In that calendar, he also puts in things like what you should plant or what's blooming now or whatever. And the one I want to focus on is harvesting because in June, you can harvest some things. Now, this is the beginning of June, so we have the whole month to do it, but basil, onion, garlics, shallots, leeks, apricots, apriums, berries, cherries, figs, nectarines, peaches, and plums. Now, some of those are later in the month, but Don, you said you had some apriums now, didn't you? Yeah, I'm harvesting right now. I'm harvesting Flavor Delight Aprium, which is just firm ripe. I'm picking them now so that something else doesn't pick them and <laughs> bring them into the counter. And uh, this is basically the first week of June is when that one ripens. I have a peach, a very early one called Gold Dust, that is probably just a few days away from the very first of them being ripe. That's early, obviously. Peach, is, peach season here is really July. Um, and those of you who have the Blenheim or Royal Apricot, this is when they start to ripen as well. And then the other thing we're picking right now, uh, berries of all kinds, blackberries, boysenberries, and blueberries in great numbers. And those of you who have cherries, still this is when cherries are harvested as well. I say those of you who have them still, because cherries unfortunately have been attacked for probably a decade now by a worm that gets into the fruit, and it's really hard for home gardeners to control it, so a lot of people have just given up growing cherry trees. But June is when you harvest those. And also the Breba crop of figs is still hanging on there. Those are the spring ripening or early summer ripening figs, not the main crop, which comes late in the summer and early fall. But yes, uh, also basil, you know, that seems early, but basil you can start picking literally just a couple weeks after you plant it. And you can keep planting it all summer long. So that's one of the very first things you're picking out of your summer garden. And I have customers who are picking squash already. They planted them in April and they're already harvesting more zucchini than they know what to do with. <laughs> so on the on the basil, is that one where it's like lettuce that you pick a leaf here and a leaf there? Or is it one where you cut the whole plant down and when you harvest? You can pinch all season. Generally people like the tender new growth because that just seems to be the most flavorful. Um, I've used all parts of the basil plant. So I usually have several plants going. You can go out and pinch off a couple of inches of new growth and use that in a recipe. If you're making, you know, for volume for pesto, you know, you're probably a few weeks away from having a plant big enough for that. But uh, you can start picking either leaves off the side or the growing shoots anytime the plant is growing vigorously. Uh, so you can start that now. And I do my last harvest of basil as late as October or even November, depending on the weather. And you said that um, tomatoes were climacteric, mm -hmm. meaning they could, could finish ripening after you pick them. Yep. Are any of the things that you're picking now also climacteric? Yes, all of those stone fruits, apricots, apriums, and peaches and nectarines. So this is an important thing to know if you're having a problem with predation on your fruit. Uh, your stone fruits in particular, uh, like your peaches, uh, apricots, things like that. You go out there and you find, you know, something ate a bunch of them overnight, which is probably a roof rat or tree rat. Um, you can pick them, the ones that are nearby those ones that got eaten, which are getting fully colored up and still firm, but, uh, but you know, getting the color that's close to harvest, bring them inside and they will continue to ripen somewhat on the counter. So really simple method for dealing with an ongoing pest problem of squirrels or rats is to harvest a little early. When you see them turning color, when you see the first damage, pick a bunch of them, bring them in, put them on your counter, so you'll at least get those. Um, other than that, you start getting into exclusion and things like that. But yes, the classic stone fruits are climacteric fruits as well. Continue to ripen after you pick them. And I can do that with my tomatoes once to, to keep the squirrels out of them. 
Yes, once you have a breaker stage. I'm going to keep, keep using that term so people run to Google and look it up. <laughs> breaker, breaker. We have you'll, find, you'll find charts of how to pick tomatoes for commercial farmers, you know, people who are selling them at a farmer's market or something like that. And there's a stage, and farm workers know this very, very well. That's what they have to, how they have to distinguish as they're picking. Solid green won't ripen well, but breaker stage will fully ripen. So it's a, it's a stage of coloration that is right after all green. So one of the things that you said is that you are harvesting your berries now, blackberries and, you know, whatever, cane, cane berries. Yes. Is this not the correct time after, immediately after you harvest mm -hmm. that you remove the, the canes that you harvested from? Is that true? Yes. In most cases of blackberries and boysenberries and that category, the cane that has fruited will never fruit again and new ones are already growing up visibly nearby to replace that. And so it's a great convenient time to go in, just to put on a glove, thornless or otherwise, put on a glove, kind of pull that cane towards you, take your pruners, go all the way down to the ground and prune it out entirely. Because uh, it's you never going to- You can do that when you pick them, can't you? I mean, can you do yeah. that and then pick this fruit off? Sure, you can do it as you pick them, you can do it shortly after. They're still pretty obvious after you've picked them because they have those fruit bases, the pedicels that, uh -huh. are, you know, that are there. And they're never going to fruit again, so they're just going to become busy stuff in the middle of the great overgrown area of, of berries that you have. And so getting them out of there now gives you a chance to let the new stuff grow up, do some training on that. It's a really good way to manage them because otherwise you end up with, speaking from considerable experience, a thicket of berries that are running all over the place and rooting in the ground, a large percentage of which aren't fruiting. So you get in, you prune out what just fruited, and you allow the new stuff to replace it. That goes for blackberries, boysenberries, loganberries, all that category. Raspberries, you need to find out locally because raspberries, in many cases, fruit twice and some of them do not all of them so they're a little more complicated you have to figure out what kind you have if you're living in an area where it's really cold in the spring my understanding is never having dealt with this you're getting most of your crop in the late summer and early fall and those are the ones you typically plant in that area so you should probably inquire locally if you're doing raspberries and i have stopped selling at my garden center raspberry plants several years ago because the feedback I continuously got was that they grow here and then they don't fruit well because of the extreme heat that comes on as they're beginning to set and fruit. I did see on a Facebook group, someone posted a picture, bowls full of raspberries from her backyard in Davis. And I'm gonna contact that person and say, what variety are you growing? Because I need to know. But overall, I still hold to my general suggestion that in the Sacramento Valley, as hot as we are, raspberries are not gonna do real well here. Um, but uh, there are some exceptions in terms of pruning those. And there's one group of blackberries that I think more people should, you'll start seeing them in garden centers more, the primo cane, as Californians call them, primo cane, that's what they really should be called, primo cane berries that were introduced by the University of Arkansas, which fruit on the first year's growth. Oh, new yeah. growth fruits. New growth fruits. And wow. that same cane fruits again the next year, and then it's done. So it's wow. a little complicated, but this is great. This means, and I've tried some of these. I've tested them. Their flavor is very, very good. That was my first question. That's all great, but how do they taste? Well, they taste wonderful. They're very good. And they were introduced originally for people who live in areas where it gets too cold, believe it or not, for blackberries to make it through the winter and fruit the second oh. year. I don't know where we're talking about, Canada or the Yukon or something. <laughs> but um, these fruited fruit the first year on the canes that come up. And then that same cane fruits again the second year, and then it's done. So watch for these. They have named, Prime is gonna be part of the name. Prime Arc is one of the ones that came on. And now there is a thornless 
primocane blackberry, which tastes great. So these are amazing. I mean, this means that you can plant it and you won't get a lot the first year because it's a little plant, but you'll actually get fruit the first year. And then you let okay. that same okay. grow a second year, you harvest, then you prune that out. Okay, I, I need more. I need more information about this. Don. So this sounds wonderful. Yeah. So if I took one of those plants and I put it in a barrel or a tub and I put a trellis behind it, would it grow? Would I get fruit? Yes. And here's an interesting thing about the, the yes, the first one I planted, which was Prime Arc. Uh, some blackberries and caneberries have a strongly upright growth habit and don't actually even need support. Others like boysenberries, if you ever grown thornless boysenberries, they sprawl, they're lax. They're not something that hold themselves up. They're more trailing in their growth habit. The first of the Primo Cane series that I grew, Prime Arc, is very upright. I have it in a 20-inch planter, and it's where I want, it's near my blueberries, so it's getting watered quite a lot, because that's a pretty small container for it. And it's doing great, and it doesn't need any support at all. It's just growing like an upright shrub, interestingly. Um, understanding is that the thornless one is a little more sprawly, so that may be a characteristic that you'll want to keep in mind as you plant it, but they don't appear to need much in the way of support compared to some of the other types of blackberries you might have experienced in your past. So yeah, these are very cool, and not every garden center has them. The places that sell bare root berries to us in the garden center business are beginning to get these into the trade, and just look for that prime. Prime is part of the name, re reflecting that primocane which stands for first, prime meaning first, first year cane will actually fruit, and that's quite unusual. Yes, okay, Lois, so I'll, put, I'll write you down for one. Ordering one of those, <laughs> those thornless uh, blackberries, yep. and I will test drive it for you. There you go, beta tester. <laughs> yeah, this is great. I'm this is blackberry tester, but yeah. who knew? Okay. Okay. So let's uh, let's go on to some of the questions that have been coming in. Um, and, and I think this one is, is fairly typical and also somewhat sad. The person says, this tree looks really stressed. We're watering it the same as we always have, but it's stressed. Is it a disease or something? And um, the answer is, no, it's 2021. Yeah, the answer is that you're watering it the same as you always have, and you need to bump that up this year. Either deeper would be my preference, or more often if you have to. Um, and yeah, this is June, the 2nd of June, and I'm already seeing the types of samples that I typically start seeing in late July, early August, more commonly after a major heat wave, when people had plants just on the edge of there's sufficient irrigation and maybe they were deficit irrigating to use the technical term that is say watering the plant a little less than it was using on an evapotranspiration on a daily basis but it was drawing on moisture that is in this soil from the winter rains in a normal year that kind of runs out sometime in june maybe even july there isn't any of that moisture there this year. We had 6.7 inches of rain. We normally get 20. And last year we had 10 inches of rain. We normally get 20. So we've had 17 inches of rain when we should have had 40 in a two-year period. There's nothing down there for the bigger woody plants to call upon. There's no reserve. And so there's a variety of ways you can provide that. You can give a very, very deep soaking to everything all at once every now and then, once a month, something like that. Or you can just take your existing irrigation pattern and bump it up 10% and see if that works. I mean, the, again, the best, the best determinant of whether you're watering well in the plant is, is the plant's performance. And uh, I don't mean vigorous, lush, new growth. I mean, do the leaves look healthy? 
Uh, do, or do they look scorched? Is the new growth continuing? Okay, they can stop new growth at some point. You know, we can tolerate less growth on a plant as a drought strategy um, you know, to water more efficiently. But if it's not growing and the leaves are looking dull compared to what they normally do and they've lost their gloss if they normally have one and it's sunburning a little bit on the west or southwest side, you're on the edge of drought stress and you're on the edge of damage to that tree. So a very like deep eventual collapse of the whole the whole thing could be serious damage. That's correct. And there's some species that we want to reiterate that we're very concerned about: coast redwoods, uh, maples, magnolias, birches are just four that I usually mention. Pretty much trees from rainier climates. We don't have to give them absolutely optimal watering. We don't have to keep them lush and vigorously growing. But if your redwood isn't growing at all, your coast redwood isn't growing at all, it's stressed and you can start to get some limb drop and other problems from it. So just to reiterate a point we've made every week, you need to water deeper, probably longer, and um, I'd prefer you not be doing it more often. I'd prefer you be giving it more water if that's possible in your situation. Large evergreen hedges, the tree that usually was fine but isn't this year, that's almost always proving to be the answer. Bear in mind that the roots go well past where you think they do. So a really simple thing most people can do is just turn on their system if that's the easiest for you and let it run all afternoon, one day while you're home watching it, and then go back to your normal cycle and see if that takes care of it. And you shouldn't have to do that more than once every month or so. Uh, you know, it, it shouldn't even necessarily be that often in some cases, but you've got to get some water stored down there in the soil for them. So we'll probably just mention this every single week through the summer would be my guess, because <laughs> I'm seeing some stress already, and it's only June. <laughs> All right. Um, Let's do something fun. Uh, Another sad one. Something oh. came in and dug up my flowers in my bed near our swimming pool. Just dug them right out of the ground and left them lying there. They made a real mess of that bed. Any idea what that might be? We've been planting this bed for years and have never had this problem. Plants I'm going to say up. either skunks or raccoons. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I pretty think that pretty much narrows it down. Possums do some <laughs> damage, but uh, my property right now, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I've been being visited by a raccoon and I had not experienced that before. The this degree to which they dig sort of almost tunnel-like things out in the garden, clearly way more than a skunk would do. I had been looking at them for a while trying to figure out what they were, and then I sighted a raccoon uh, and realized, okay, that's what I'm dealing with. Um, pretty good chance, as random as raccoons typically are, that maybe they won't even come back. You know, they, they may not have liked being around. You might have scared them off. Turning a light on, by the way, leaving a light on at night will frequently deter the animals that visit at night. At least they won't come closer to where the light is frequently, making no promises because raccoons are pretty unfazed by a lot of things. Noises uh, make it awkward for them to get into your garden area. I've heard a variety of techniques. People take wind chimes. Not a big fan of wind chimes in general, but this is a great use for them, where you think that the raccoon is coming in through the gate, through the fence, over the fence, hang some wind chimes there that will be disturbed by the animal brushing through. It'll make a noise that will disturb them and probably they'll go away unless they get used to it. Um, and the damage that they do is frustrating, but it's, it's usually they aren't damaging the plants directly. They're just digging past them to get at something underground. And one of the most common things they're going after, I'm sorry to say, is blood meal. Blood meal is a great fertilizer, but it's very attractive to certain animals, especially skunks, but also apparently raccoons. And they can smell it down underground, right under that plant you just planted on top of it. So they will push that out of the way to get at the blood meal. So perhaps if that's been an issue and you want to use an organic fertilizer, shift to something like cottonseed meal or something that's apparently less attractive to them. 
I would never have thought about that fertilizer issue. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you, Don. Yeah, they are attracted to certain types. And so perhaps just changing what you, a little late, you know, for that person. (laughs) So in my garden, I would just stick them back in the ground. that's information that people should, who are selling blood meals should, should know about. Yeah. 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 Would, wouldn't wouldn't uh, cats and dogs also be attracted to that? I mean, they're carnivores. Oh, my dog is very attracted to blood meal and it can cause serious kidney problems. So you do need to be aware of that, that uh, if you're a, fa- a fan of blood meal as a fertilizer, we used some in the nursery yard, but we had a broken bag. So we went ahead and put it on some of the 15 gallon containers. And I watched as my dog every single day as I was leaving methodically went over to them and started trying to eat it. So, and that's really not good, just for the record. So uh, we had to, one, kind of clean it all off, and two, I had to keep him right at my heels as we walked out. That went on for about two weeks. He could still smell it. So that's something to be aware of, is that some of these organic fertilizers are not entirely safe for your pets. Okay. Let's do something fun. That's, that's so, really so here's a fun one. Okay. Um, I said cover crop, meaning covering the ground. But there is a, an article that Don handed me, which is about covering a window or covering the side of a house or, yes. okay, so this, the title of this is Some Unusual Easy Vines for Summer Cover. I'm going to read the four and then we're going to talk about each one. Yeah, so these are just real quick. No, I'm not, I can't pronounce them, so we'll just talk about each one. <laughs> <laughs> you can try and pronounce them. Give it a try. Kobia scandenza. Kobia. Kobia scandens. What these are is vines that you can plant pretty easily, pretty inexpensively. They'll give a quick cover for the summer and uh, might come back, might not, depending on, you know, they vary somewhat in that regard. So someone who has a window or someone who has a shade structure, maybe they have a place they like to sit in the vegetable garden with a really simple structure over it. They want a vine on that. And I, I thought I'd mention, you know, there's the common ones that most people know. For example, scarlet runner beans. You know, very pretty, very, very easy to grow uh, just from seed. Just go plant some seed. And yes, you still have time to do that here. Or morning glory, warning, warning, <laughs> before you go and do this. The annual type of morning glory reseeds like crazy. I know because I've planted it everywhere I've lived. And the perennial form just runs amok and roots everywhere. Don't, so, don't uh, do it. Just I don't just, do it. I, I, don't, nope. I don't even stock <laughs> even that if plant. You, even if you've got a container to put it in, just don't do it. Lois <laughs> has been trying to get rid of that stuff ever since Don sold it to me 20 yeah. years ago. I have stopped selling them, just so you know, you'll be happy to know. And uh, we planted, this is the perennial morning glory with a beautiful blue flower, blue dawn sky flower. It's one of my favorite flowers, by the way. I love to photograph them. And I planted one out front at the nursery easily 20 years ago, and we're still digging it out all these years later. I think we finally have it on the run after all these years. So let's just move on from that one. Um, or you can grow hop vines, which are deciduous to the ground, but they're, they're extremely vigorous in cover. But the first one of, of the ones I thought of here is a vine I first grew when I was about 12 years old. I ordered it from a seed catalog. I grew it in coastal San Diego. It grew rapidly up to our, our overhang, and I ran along there and put out these beautiful purple flowers. It's called cup and saucer vine, Cobia, C-O-B-A-E-A, Scandens. And you're not going to find it in a garden center. You grow it from seed. You order it from any of a number of seed companies, cup and saucer vine. And I moved away from coastal San Diego, which is frost-free, and moved up here and thought, well, I can't grow that now. I mean, down there, it's perennial. Down there, it lasted from year to year. I finally only pulled it out because it got really overgrown and tangly, and it just was no longer attractive after a couple of years. But I wasn't going to grow it up here because, you know, it's not, it's not perennial. 
Well, I finally, I've been doing a thing of going back and growing many of the things I first grew as a gardener. Now, all these years later, 50 years later, I'm growing them again. I thought, I'll just grow this one again. Why not? Started it last year from seed. Very easy from seed when the conditions are warm. So either wait until it's warm enough for the seed to start like a pepper plant or do it in your greenhouse or whatever. And they come up and they're kind of scary vigorous. I mean, this thing comes out and it just takes off. Uh, and I planted it in the ground and it covered about 20 feet of fence and bloomed beautifully. There's a picture that I think we're probably gonna post somewhere. And that was really pretty and that was wonderful. And I thought, all right, well, that's good. That sure is a scary looking vine. I'm sure glad it's not perennial here. <laughs> Little did you know. Unlike what the Sunset Western Garden Book will tell you, which listed it literally only for zone 24, which is coastal San Diego, it came back here and we're in zone 14. We're in zone USDA zone 9B and they're saying zone 10. Well, maybe it was a mild winter, but I'm telling you it came back with a vengeance and it's easily 30 feet down a fence now doing a great cover. It looks very tropical, beautiful flowers. And it's not gonna be hard to get rid of if I choose to do that, but it is proving to be perennial at least in USDA zone 9B. More to the point, any of you listening anywhere, if you get it into the ground at the beginning of the warm season, it'll cover and give a very fast cover the same summer with really, really pretty, fascinating purple flowers. So that's cup and saucer vine. The same category as the black-eyed Susan vine, Thunbergia, Thunbergia <laughs> alata. Oh, back up. Yes. Yeah, back up. Okay. Back to the cup and saucer vine. Um, you said you grew it on a fence. Yep. Is it something that you have to train up or will it naturally rise? It won't crawl across the ground? Oh, it has tendrils that are holding on to everything nearby. So it climbs itself up with no problem. It doesn't root into things. This is not like ivy or something, but it has robust tendrils that reach out and grab onto whatever is nearby and hold quite securely. So once you get it up onto something like a fence or a tree or whatever it's chosen to climb up, it will hold itself up there with no problem. So far, it has not shown the propensity for running across the ground that is such a problem with morning glory, for example, <laughs> or, or some or is it, is it sun, full sun only, or is, could it also be in a shade? I started mine in shade last year, and it grown, grow, grew and bloomed beautifully. Given where it is, it's now grown out into full sun, same plant, and it's doing fine there as well. Plenty of water, obviously, and the thing grows, as I said, it's kind of scarily fast. So if you need a cover, great choice. Probably and not too hard. It, when does the when do the leaves drop off? They freeze off. So frost. Okay. Frost is what does them in. And I thought it would kill it, but evidently not. So okay. <laughs> consider yourself forewarned. But that's just one example. These are just some fun ones. I mean, another one would be the um, um, uh, Thunbergia alata, which is sometimes called clock vine. I believe is the common name for it, or black-eyed Susan. Black-eyed Susan vine. Yeah, and it's a, yeah. I, I do want to mention this one. The, the leaves and stems uh, cause skin irritation. So before you plant this really close to where you're going to be sitting or hanging around, I always mention it to the staff because they come in and they make your skin itchy. It's one of those plants, like Alstroemeria, certain other plants in our trade that people need to know can cause mild skin irritation. It grows very vigorously, has these really pretty flowers that are either yellow original ones or now orange or there's dark red ones with a black throat. really stands out very well. It grows very vigorously to about 10 or 15 feet. It's supposed to be killed to the ground, Usually they were, last winter mine weren't, so I've had a lot of people reporting they came back this year, but it certainly would cover very quickly. But that's something you would buy in a garden center because they're mostly grown in gallon containers and it'll give you a quick cover. Um, getting to some that I think are um, more permanent, 
at least in our climate zone, again, remembering that some people listen in much colder climates, one that I like to sell because it's not an overwhelming vine and it's fragrant, but not overwhelmingly fragrant and um, is Pandoria jasminoides. It's sometimes called the bower vine. Uh, it's got really pretty trumpet flowers. It's in the trumpet vine group and it's one of the only members of the trumpet vine group that I'm comfortable selling to people without a long conversation. Most trumpet vines will overwhelm your yard. Um, some of them will sucker everywhere, 10, 15 feet from the main plant, they'll be popping up from the roots. This one does not do that. And so it's got fragrant, but you, the kind of fragrant where you walk up to the flower and smell it, not the kind of fragrant where everyone within 20 yards has to smell it. So it's a well-mannered, good neighbor vine in that regard. This isn't star jasmine. This is something that you would want to have for the fragrance, not something that's going to overwhelm you and make your eyes run. And uh, it's evergreen. So probably pretty easy from cuttings for those who are trying to be frugal, which is where this first question came up, people who didn't really want to spend money. But you can certainly buy it at garden centers as well. And then another one that's in that group. Uh, okay, yes. When you say evergreen, does that mean it's uh, it's permanent? Yes. yes. I mean, it yes. it comes back. It's there forever. It's not. It's, it's not even. It doesn't die back with the no. frost. Or no, anything. not in our not in our climate. I think you get down to about twenty five degrees, you start to get top damage on it. So those of you listening in, like, say, USDA Zone Nine A or Sunset Zone 8, which is like the colder part of the valley, you might get some top damage on it, but I suspect it would recover. This is another one where the old Western Garden Book didn't show it for this climate zone, but considerable experience now, even fairly cold winters, it will go through for people. So that's and Pandoria jasminoides. And the jasminoides means jasmine-like. Yeah, it's a common species name on a lot of botanical names of a lot of vines. Just basically says this grows like a jasmine. It doesn't necessarily mean they're fragrant or anything. I really actually kind of wish that taxonomists wouldn't use jasminoides as a species name because it leads to a lot of confusion. When you see that, oides as part of the species name just means like. So this is like a jasmine, Solanum jasminoides, Pandoria jasminoides, Trachylospermum jasminoides. All of them are just saying, this is a vine with some fragrance that grows like a jasmine. Um, it's not anything like it. It's not a jasmine at all. They're not even related, even tangentially, but uh, it is a vine. That's pretty much all it's saying. So I noticed that you've been very careful not to have me try and pronounce these names. Thank you, Don. Yes. You want to do the next one? Uh, you want, hmm. Okay. <laughs> Pecomaria capensis. Ooh, ooh, I know that capensis. That's an oides thing, even though it doesn't have oides. It means from the Cape, right? From the Cape of South Africa, yeah. And so when we, when we in California see capensis, C-A-P-E-N-S-I-S, as the species name of a plant, we know it's very likely to do well here because the Cape of South Africa has many climates, re regional climates that are very, very similar to parts of California. They may be more tender than here in some cases, and Tecomeria capensis is hardy enough to grow here. Now, this is a case where the common name is hopeless. Its common name is Cape Honeysuckle. It's not a honeysuckle at all. It's in the trumpet vine family, but it's not a rampant trumpet vine like the other trumpet vines you know. So uh, common names will drive me crazy in the nursery business. Uh, I, it, it's a case where they're more often misleading than accurate. But Tecomeria is a, it's not a vine by nature. It's a big sprawling woody plant like a bougainvillea. So it doesn't hold itself onto things, it doesn't twine, it doesn't have tendrils, it doesn't root. It's just a big thing that grows up and then grows out and falls over 
and you decide what to do with it. And there's a bunch of new ones that have come on the market that'll bloom very compact. So people are growing them like shrubs. They're just letting them grow, cutting them back. It blooms on new growths, no matter what you do to it. So you can keep pruning them and you get all this bloom. But the basic growth habit is that they'll send up these very long stems. It will go eight, 10, 12 feet if you let them. So tie them up on a fence like a bougainvillea, tie them out across the top of a fence, put them on a trellis or let them just arch out if you have room for that kind of thing and you get lots and lots of bloom. And the Cape Honeysuckle, using the common name Tecumaria, is hardy down to the mid 20s, even to the low 20s, it'll recover from that. Basically evergreen here, probably deciduous as you get down into zone 9A or even zone 8 if it would be grown there. We're talking USDA zones there. Um, and a very, very attractive to hummingbirds. And so this is, this is one that with that tubular flower, you know, they'll always tell you, look for a tubular flower for hummingbird plants, which seems to be accurate. Also the big carpenter bees like that as well. So you'll see them visiting them and they've broadened the range. They used to just be orange red. Now you have yellow, dark red, and some other colors as well. And do those, um, Tecumaria capensis, do they bloom in the winter here? Uh, they bloom all the way into the fall and to late fall and even into the winter. They are still blooming in December this year. Uh, so yes, they're, they're one of these plants that gives a nice late bloom and they'll continue. They're starting now. A lot of them are beginning to bloom, coming in and bloom from the growers. And they do cycles of bloom all summer long. And yes, that's what's cool about them. They'll be blooming well into November with no problem. Then they continue to bloom, just depends on how cold we get. But there's a lot of plants like that that are still giving, still attractive to the resident hummingbird all the way yes. into at least the early winter. And, uh, and you know, then you cut them back and they flush back and they're blooming again next spring. All right. All right, well, I think that's all of those uh, easy vines for summer cover that you were going to talk about today. And <laughs> do we have easy vines that are shade only? Um, vines for the shade are much more challenging, but there are some choices. The Mandevilla laxa, which is called Chilean jasmine, uh, which is a deciduous relative of the Mandevillas that you're seeing at all the home improvement chains. The Chilean jasmine is hardy. Those are not. The Chilean jasmine is deciduous. Those are evergreen. The Chilean jasmine blooms only for the summer, for a period of time, those others tend to bloom all the time, which is why they're selling so well, but they're a totally different beast. And that one actually, the Mandeville laxa will take shape. Then uh, there's the um, um, Virginia creeper and all of its relatives, Boston Ivy, Virginia creeper. Be careful where you plant them because they actually do kind of root onto what they're growing on. Beautiful fall color, they can take shape, particularly the silver vein creeper, which is Parthenocissus henriana. It's very pretty foliage and beautiful fall color on that one as well. And a curious vine for considerable shade or as a house plant is the Fats Hedera lisii, which when I was first working in a nursery was being sold with the common name Botanical Wonder. Uh, the name was applied <laughs> because it was a cross between Fatsia japonica, Japanese aurelia, and Hedera helix, English ivy. These two plants oh. are in the same family, but they were different genera. And you're not supposed to be able to hybridize between genera in general. Uh, usually two plants that are that not that related aren't supposed to be able to cross. So someone did it, someone accomplished this and came up with fats hetera, fatsia crossed hetera, 
Lizzie is the species name, and it will grow. It's grown as a house plant. It will grow in very low light. It, unlike ivy, it doesn't root onto what's nearby, so it doesn't become a nuisance. But unlike ivy, thus you have to tie it up or do whatever you want with it. But it has a big, bold leaf, much like the Fatsia japonica. I don't know what the That's ultimate. That's fascinating. It is. It's a cool are those plant. Still around? They are. They're in the trade, and over the years, as they were propagated, some variegated versions came about, as usually happens after a while when you're, you know, when you propagate something by cuttings often enough. Let's see, Fats heterolysii goes down to zone four in the sunset definition. You use sunset zones four to 10, 12 to 24. So it can go down pretty cold. And it also is grown, as I said, as a house plant. As I'm, I'm told, Fatsia japonica is sometimes grown as a house plant as well. So kind of a tropical look, sort of a zany growth habit. You're going to want to work with it. But I've seen people train them in sort of an espalier pattern on a wall. And it's one of those plants like Aspidistra or Sarcococa or Ruscus that can grow in about the darkest shade that you have. So if you have one of those really difficult, oh, there's a, there was a builder in Davis who did these, these houses. I can't remember the name of the builder, but anyone in town would probably know. With these great long overhangs, sort of Frank Lloyd Wright style. That was fine if they faced south, but the ones that faced north, they would leave these planter areas for people to put plants in under a north side with an overhang. There's a list of about That's five. Like total shade. Right. So you might as well be indoors. There's about five plants that will grow in that situation. Or house plants are actually, or, or some people would actually end up just using, you know, Schefflera or some kind of indoor plant that's got some reasonable cold hardiness. But the plants that'll take that are the Aspidistra, cast iron plant, the Ruscus, butcher's broom, Fats Hetera. People would also use Mondo grass and, and Sarcococa and certain other plants because they can tolerate that very, very, very low light condition. Well, if you've got one of those difficult spots and you want a vine, you could consider the Parthenocystis that I mentioned before, silver vein creeper, but especially also look around for Fats Hedera, F-A-T-S-H-E-D-E-R-A, Fats Hedera lizii, the botanical wonder intergeneric hybrid. Okay, you can you can order one of those for me too. <laughs> <laughs> and the very good ones are kind of cool because then you have a little you know leaves with spots of, of yellow on them that kind of highlight a you know in the shade. One of your issues is that dark green plants in the shade you know, don't really stand out. I often sell people mondo grass or turf lily, you know, liri oak for those situations. Well, they're just dark green, so nothing really exciting going on there. But the but very they, good they have flowers. They have they flowers, have and, there's, and there are variegated versions of each of those. There's a variegated mondo grass, and there's a variegated uh, lyriope or turf lily, which are probably better choices for the dark, dark, shady environment. So, okay, those are some interesting vines. Okay. And so, um, yeah, and, and folks, you, if you haven't done it, I would suggest you go Google cup and saucer vine and look for the images. Yeah. Those flowers are phenomenal. They're big, big, bold, and tropical. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.